welcome to Balanced Black Girl. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Les, I'm your host, and I appreciate you being here. This month on the podcast, we're talking about intimacy and connection, and not necessarily in the ways you may think. Last week, I talked about why intimacy and connection were so important for our health. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I highly recommend you do. And today we're talking about the importance of platonic intimacy and maintaining healthy friendships. Navigating friendship is one of the hardest things about getting older. Making friends and keeping friends feels really hard when we don't have the structure of school or activities to facilitate the process like we do when we're younger. You throw in life changes such as moving to a new city, getting engaged and married, having kids, getting divorced, switching career paths. You throw those things into the mix and navigating friendship as an adult can feel even harder. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Marissa Franco, and we talk about the significance of friendship, why our friendships are so important, why they're some of the most intimate relationships we can have, ways we can be better friends with one another, how to navigate maintaining friendships and establishing new friendships and some of those life changes that I just mentioned, as well as the million-dollar question, how do we make friends as an adult? Dr. Marissa Franco is a psychologist, international speaker, and New York Times bestselling author known for digesting and communicating science in ways that resonate deeply enough with people to change their lives. She works as a professor at the University of Maryland and authored the New York Times bestseller, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. She writes about friendship for psychology today and has been a featured connection expert for major publications like the New York Times, The Telegraph, and Vice. Now, this episode is going to make you want to love on your friends and will hopefully inspire you to continue making new ones. So let's get into our conversation with Dr. Franco. Dr. Franco, welcome to Balance Flat Girl. I am so excited to talk to you today. This month on the podcast, we're covering all things intimacy, and we're talking about the role of intimacy when it comes to well-being. And I think when a lot of people think of intimacy, they automatically think of sex or romantic partners and relationships. But I'm really interested in talking to you about platonic intimacy and intimacy in our friendships. Less. I uh, this is something I've been battling against as someone who studies friendship because you know it seems romantic love has in a lot of people's minds the monopoly on intimacy and studying friendship I've kind of realized that intimacy is intimacy. What I mean by that is the same things that create closeness for your romantic partner will also create closeness for your friends, like taking your friends out on a date or being really vulnerable with them or working through conflict and. I think the unfortunate thing is that some of us relate to friendship like it's a different breed or species of relationship. Like there's a completely different set of rules and that limits our ability to transfer the skills we might have developed through marriage or a romantic relationship to our friendships. And it also, I think, sometimes makes us relate to friendship in really unreasonable ways. Like, you know, good vibes only. And if we have any issues, it's time for me to just withdraw when if we think of it as an intimate relationship, that's part of intimacy is having conflict that you have to work through. Oh my goodness. There's so much in everything that you just said that I'm like, yes, let's get into (laughs) all of this, all of this more. The first thing that really struck me about what you said was kind of talking about romantic relationships versus platonic relationships and how romantic relationships tend to be 
higher prioritized and emphasized in a different way. Can we talk more about why that is and why many of us are socialized to believe that romantic relationships are more important than platonic relationships? So I'm a psychologist, but I've read some speculations from historians, so these aren't trademark my ideas. But, you know, in the past, as women, we kind of had to enter marriage under duress. Like, we couldn't Mm -hmm. get rights to anything without getting married to someone. As we develop more rights and the ability to sustain, to get jobs, the job market started to open up for us. We could own our own properties. We could open our own credit cards. The question became, what is going to keep us in these marriages? And could friendship then threaten marriage if you can do with friends a lot of the things that you could do with a potential romantic partner? And so it almost, to bring us to a place where friendship doesn't threaten marriage, we have these messages that we need this one person to complete us, that our entire worth is dependent on whether we have a romantic partner. When ironically, there's some research that finds that people actually experience more intimacy women particularly, with their friends than um, Mm -hmm. with their marital partner. And I'm just really interested in disrupting these categories because, like, for us to see friendship as an inferior relationship becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I assume that, you know, friends are just once a month lunch dates. Then I'm not investing. I'm not vulnerable. I'm not picking my friends up at the airport. I'm not trying to set aside time to make my friends feel special because I just think it's not going to be worth it because it's inferior. And then it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. And so if we can see friendship as as being pretty much anything that a romantic partnership could be, I mean, aside from sex by definition, that, you know, people could even choose friends as life partners, you know, queer communities talk about chosen family, that family is a social construct and we can decide to imbue all the things we associate with family onto friends and that this historically mm-hmm. has been a norm in the, in the Black community, you know, using familial yeah. terms for, for friendships as well, then um, if we challenge, I think, this category that we have as friends, then we can really reap the deep potential for f- intimacy that can come with mm-hmm. platonic love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is such an interesting point, almost this deprioritization of friendships compared to romantic relationships as like a marketing ploy to to get women to invest more (laughs) in romantic relationships is kind of what it it sounds like. And it checks out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm curious too, if there are any differences in gender. I mean, of course, you know, people have friends and relationships of all genders. I do think for a lot of people, they may tend to gravitate more of their closer friendships to people in the same gender. At least that's been my experience. Are there any differences with how people in different genders approach these friendships? So you mentioned how women tend to have more intimate relationships with people they consider friends, or is that kind of implying that they tend to have more intimate, close relationships with girlfriends? Does that mean that men who are friends with other men tend to have friendships that are a little bit less intimate? Is there kind of research that indicates any of that? There, There is. I will say that I don't think the data has been broken down enough by race, but generally when we compare men versus women according to the research and Disclaimer, I share this research and people are like, what about me and my very close bud? And I'm like, well, research is trends. It's not going to be true for everyone. That um, women do experience more intimacy in their friendships than men do. Women tend to invest more in their friendships. Women are twice as likely to be vulnerable, twice as likely to share with their friends that they love them compared to men. And so 
when I, I teach classes on loneliness and there's this day in class where I kind of go through all these things that you might do with a friend. Like how comfortable would you be telling a friend that you love them or taking friend out for, you know, kind of to celebrate them almost like a date. And I see even in Gen Z, sadly, because I think some of us are like, Gen Z, save us, that there's a lot of stark differences between what my male students and my female students feel comfortable with. And I've kind of come to understand it as as women, our script for friendship tends to have a lot of overlap with our script for romance. Like women will say, you're my soulmate. I think you're amazing. I love you so much. You know, even be more physical with their friends. Whereas with men, it's like there's a completely different script. Like I am vulnerable with my romantic partner. I tell my romantic partner I love them. My friends We'll go watch a movie together. We'll play sports. You know, we'll we'll talk about ideas, not necessarily ourselves. And again, it's a generalization. But yeah, we see that that just there's just a lot less of a dichotomizing of platonic and mm-hmm. romantic in women's lives, which I argue, and this could be seen as kind of radical, that romantic love is part of friendship. If we define romantic love as Mm -hmm. someone who I'm passionate about and who thrills me and not sexual, which is separate, I think asexual communities have shown us that you can experience romance Mm -hmm. without sexual interest, we'll find Mm -hmm. that some of our friendships feel quite romantic. Like I'm excited about them. I'm passionate about them. Some of our friendships don't. They feel maybe more like warmth and companionship. But yes, generally I think how can we have this hierarchy of love, assuming romantic love is at the top, when romantic Mm -hmm. love is also kind of a part of friendship? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So it sounds like a lot of these types of relationships are more integrated than we may have initially thought. (laughs) I, yes, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I think a lot of, it's sad to me because on the one hand, it's like, we're so lonely. And I've been in a place, like this is my inspiration for writing Platonic, where I felt so lonely, I felt so worthless, I felt so unlovable because I didn't have a romantic partner, but I had so many friends. And I was like, well, why doesn't this count Mm -hmm. as love? And because loneliness is a subjective experience, it's how you perceive your connections rather than what they actually are. I think the ways that we devalue friendship means a lot of people are like, I don't have any love in my life when they're there's like all of these people loving them around them. And that's just like at the level of loneliness that we're at, I just think it's not something we can afford to do. Mm, That's such a good point. Can we talk a little bit more about loneliness and how loneliness can impact our health and the importance of addressing loneliness? Yeah. So loneliness, we think of it as a feeling, but it's so much more than that. It's a chronic stress experience, Mm. basically because historically, if you were lonely, you were in danger, you were separated from your tribe. What happens in our bodies is that we go into a state of threat. Our brains are constantly scanning for people rejecting us. There's a lot of signs and symptoms of loneliness that people do not know about. For example, I know when I'm in a bad mood and I don't know why. That's a symptom of loneliness. When I want to reach out to my friends, but I assume that they don't want to hear from me. Lonely people are more likely to think other people are going to reject them. Lonely people report having less compassion for others, liking their roommates less. For me, I know I'm lonely when I'm looking at my friendships and all of a sudden I'm resentful. It's like I'm weighing the pros and cons differently. I'm thinking about, well, she did this and maybe she's not that good of a friend. Whereas when I'm not lonely, I'm like, she did this, but she does all these other good things. So it makes me a lot – there's this shift in like cynicism that happens. We tend to be more self-absorbed when we're lonely, ironically – 
Uh, when lonely people engage in conversation, they talk more about themselves and less about other people. And then when we're lonely, we ironically want to connect, but people also report wanting to withdraw from others when they're lonely because you want to connect. But if you think everyone's going to reject you, if you connect, it gets really hard to do that. And so that's why loneliness is contagious. The more you interact with people that are lonely, the more likely you are to get lonely at very high degrees. And it's it's just a chaotic mess. I'm just like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why are our bodies doing this to us? We need to connect with people. And our bodies are just like going into this defensive mode, which over time, being in that chronic state of stress, it takes such a toll on your body. So for example, research finds that things like diet, exercise affect how long you live, but your social networks, your level of connection affects how long you live more, more than your diet, more than how much you exercise. Wow. That's, I did not know that. That's incredible. Yeah. So when it comes to loneliness, is there a difference between, I guess, kind of general feelings of loneliness and maybe being in a state of chronic loneliness? And how do we differentiate between the two? Absolutely. So what we find in the research is that loneliness tends to be accompanied by this feeling that there's something wrong with me, which is why I think one of the ways we inoculate people against loneliness is to say, expect that you will be lonely at certain times, that actually most of us are lonely. We tend to think everyone else has their friends. Like there's a study that found we think other people are more connected than they actually are, which makes us feel even worse about ourselves. That yeah, loneliness is part of life. We will all face it. Uh, doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. In fact, you're more normal if you're lonely than if you have a <laughs> wonderful group of friends, according to the research. So that's not something that we can, I think, I, I'm just trying to take the shame away from loneliness. And there's a lot of societal reasons why we are lonely. But what we see that when people get chronically lonely is they're not only down on themselves, they develop these negative beliefs about everyone else. Like people can't be trusted. Mm -hmm. People are out to get you. Like they start to externalize the problem too. And that's when it's really sticky Mm -hmm. to get out of. That's when it's like, it's really hard to get out of because if there's a problem with me, at least I have the agency to do something about it. But if there's a problem with everyone else where everybody's just awful and horrible and cruel, which is kind of like how you'll hear chronically lonely people talk about others, then it feels like, well, there's nothing I can do. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why we see relationships between loneliness and violence, because it's like, well, if everyone Mm -hmm. hates me, if everyone's cruel and there's nothing that I can do about it, then... It's almost like the act of violence is reaction to a perceived sense of violence from other people and in people's mm-hmm. heads is sort of rationalized and justified in some ways. And so, you know, funny enough, the, the most successful interventions against loneliness have been about changing people's thinking patterns when they're lonely, more so mm-hmm. than connecting them with mm-hmm. people, like helping them mm-hmm. understand that people do like you. There's hope for connection. It's okay that you're lonely. You know, there's nothing wrong with you. Kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy, but specifically for the types of beliefs we develop when we're lonely. That is really, really interesting. I I was going to ask a question similar to that of could loneliness get to a point where it is almost like a mental health condition and, and be treated as such? And it sounds like it with that explanation. Yeah. I mean, it is one of the biggest predictors we have of like, mental health, a lot of the symptoms of depression overlap with the symptoms of loneliness, like this desire to withdraw, this Mm -hmm. thought that nobody loves you. You know, the interpersonal theory of psychology, which I practice from, is the idea that our mental health issues are connection issues. And there's a study that found that out of 106 factors that 
influence depression, having someone to confide in is the number one thing that protects us against de- depression. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's pretty powerful, the relationship between how connected we are and how we're mentally thriving. It's just like, you know, I say it like, just like we need air and we need water to survive, we also need connection to to function, to function optimally. Yeah, definitely. So much of this has me thinking about a lot of the ways that wellness is communicated. I mean, also obviously hosting a wellness podcast and being a wellness content creator, I've talked at length about things like nutrition and exercise, but hearing that our relationships actually have a bigger impact on our health than even those things, which we're often, you know, marketed to to focus on, I think really gives us an opportunity to shift the ways we talk about health and wellness as well. Exactly. I mean, I think of connection, and obviously I study this, so conflict of interest here, but I, I think of it as the foundation of, of so many things. Like even as a professor, yeah. I think of how, well, if my students are lonely and they're constantly in a threat state. How are they going to take in what I'm sharing with them? <laughs> so for me, it's like I yeah. have to try to work to make my students feel like they belong so I could actually teach them. And I think, you know, connection can be at the basis of, for example, feeling like motivated to do things or having enough self-regulation to make other healthy decisions for yourself. And so I think there are ways that our level of connection can be, I think, the backbone through which we try to engage in a lot of other behaviors that will keep us healthy. Absolutely. Yeah. It's that that foundational blueprint, which is just not often talked about, but really important. So I would love to talk a little bit more about ways we can pour into the friendships that we have and why platonic intimacy is so important to invest in. You know, we mentioned earlier that we don't tend to have as much grace when it comes to our friendships. You gave the example of like, if something isn't working with a friend, we may be more likely to cut it off versus in a romantic relationship. If something isn't working, we may look to try to address that problem. So what are some ways that we can foster a deeper sense of intimacy in our platonic relationships? Anything that makes another person feel loved and valued is going to foster intimacy. So this is according to a theory called the theory of inferred attraction, which is people like people that they think like them. And there's another theory called risk regulation theory, which is the idea that we decide how much to invest in a relationship based on our view of how likely we are to get rejected, which what that means is that if people are trying to connect with you, the more you do things to show them that you won't reject them, the more invested they are going to be in a connection. So what does that look like? It looks like telling people when you really like them, like being upfront about your affection for them and and just, you know, saying it. It looks like being vulnerable because that's an act that conveys to people that you really trust them and um, certainly deepens relationships to a great degree as long as it's done with the right person and in a safe container. It looks like being generous toward other people, like, you know, cooking dinner for your friends or picking them up at the airport or volunteering to babysit your kids. I think a lot of times our issue is that when we think about connection, we think a lot about ourselves. We think about, you know, Mm -hmm. am I charismatic or entertaining or funny or smart? We think about our personalities, but it's more about how we treat people. Like anyone can make friends, anyone of so many different personalities. It's about how loving they are towards others rather than, you know, whether they're entertaining, which is actually the least important trait people report in a friend. The most important is that they want someone that makes them feel like they are valued and that they matter. And so that's what's really important. But I think 
just since your um, podcast is kind of contrasting the different forms of intimacy, and I'm really interested in mm-hmm. in leveling this hierarchy and trying to treat at least my closest friends at the similar level at which I would treat a romantic partner, like to kind of treat those very equally. Yeah. And I find myself trying to find that intimacy by literally asking myself, would I do this for a romantic partner? <laughs> and, and deciding whether I do it for a friend. So mm-hmm. I had a friend, she was like yeah. coming back from Mexico at midnight. And I was like, oh my gosh, do I want to pick her up? And this is a friend that I discerned. I want to, I want to be really close to her. We already are close, but I'd like to continue to get close to her. And um, once I asked myself that question, I was like, Absolutely, I'd do this for a romantic partner. I'm going to go pick her mm-hmm. up. But even things like, you know, flying across the country to see your best friend or taking trips with your friend. Like sometimes yeah. we get into romantic relationships and all of a sudden we were going on trips with our friends for a decade and we're like, sorry, peace. Just going to, you know, take this trip with my romantic <laughs> partner. And so um, I think that's just a helpful question that we can keep in mind if we really want intimacy because in a lot of our brains, that intimacy is monopolized by romantic love. Like, how can I allow myself to do a lot of the things that I do to show investment in a spouse or a romantic partner? And how can I carry those over to my friendships? Mm, I love that. That's such a great just gauge of like, if I'm really willing to go to this vacation, can I take a vacation with my friends as well and see that as just as high of a priority? I, I really like that. And I want to ask myself that question as well. Also, while you were talking, I was thinking a lot about the Maya Angelou quote of people will forget what you said, but they'll remember how you make them feel. And it sounds like that is really at the root of being a good friend and and helping foster that sense of belonging in our relationships is how we make people feel. Absolutely. And I think another implication of that is something that I call diagnostic moments, which are Mm. moments that disproportionately affect how satisfied your friends are with you. And those moments are the moments when your friends are feeling the most, either high feelings or low feelings. Like friends will remember how you treated them when they needed support the most. Friends will remember how you responded to their joy. I mean, there's a study that actually finds that how you respond to someone's joy predicts satisfaction in the relationship even more than how you respond when they need support. Yeah. So I think sometimes we think of, you know, friendship this sounds like a lot of work and it is a lot of work, honestly, but all relationships are a lot of work. Like you get out what you put in, but there's also ways to be strategic about it. Like when you know your friend's in distress, that's, that's the time that should be the signal to you. Let me start being more intentional. Let me reach out to them more. Let me send them some lunch or dinner. Let me do something sweet for them. Let me leave them a card. Or if this friend just had like a great accomplishment that they've always wanted, let me drop off some flowers to them. Let me take the time and intention to send them a voice note to tell them how excited I am for them. Let me show my joy. Like, let me jump up and down and scream for them. Like, if we can do those in those diagnostic moments, it's going to play such a powerful role in maintaining our friendships. Absolutely. And to that point, something that I'm also learning is the importance of celebrating also the joy and accomplishments that don't necessarily revolve around romantic partnerships, because I think for a lot of people, probably the most celebrated they'll ever feel is if they choose to get married or maybe like the birth of their first child, depending on the circumstances. But other great things that happen in life are often rarely as celebrated. And so finding ways to show up for all of those things, I think can be really powerful. Absolutely. I I really think about that too, Les, like in terms of... um we often sell this might be a little bit of a tangent, but like there's these 
I guess, traditional markers of what we should celebrate. Mm -hmm. But like, are those actually the things that people feel internally? Are there things that are most worthy of celebration? Like I think about people are healing from intergenerational trauma. Like we're not even, (laughs) we're not even having a celebration for that. That is like such a powerful thing. Um, You know, people doing things that are more internal to them or feeling like they're getting kinder to themselves. I'm just, I'm like, maybe we need to be asking each other, like what, in your life do you feel is worthy of celebration and like how can we celebrate that together if that's something that you're open to? Mm-hmm. I love that. I think that that's something that, I don't know, I, I definitely want to take forward in my friendships is, is celebrating those things that seem small but are really big for the person and really impactful. Absolutely. Yeah. So one other thing that I was thinking about is that sometimes I think for a lot of people, it can be hard to receive support or to Mm -hmm. reach out when they're feeling low or to ask for help when they need it. How can we feel more comfortable receiving love and support from friends if we typically have maybe a wall there or we don't want to inconvenience people or we don't want to be a burden? These are all things that I think about, you know, when I hesitate to reach out when I need support. And I'm sure a lot of other people probably feel the same way. Absolutely. This is normal. This is like one of the glitches in our brain is something called the negativity bias. We pay attention to negative information more than positive. And what that means is that when we predict how people respond to our needs, our prediction tends to be more cynical than is the truth. Like, I'm going to come off as a burden. You know, they're going to feel imposed upon. They're not going to want to help me. They're going to see me as weak, right? That's our brain trying to protect us. But according to the research, you know, people are a lot more happy to support us than we think. There's this phenomenon called the beautiful mess effect, which is this finding that when we think about the impact of our vulnerability, we misjudge it as more negative than it actually is. And in fact, it causes people to see us more authentic and honest and to have also these more positive perceptions of us. So what I try to do, knowing this glitch in our brain, is that I ask myself, how would it come off to me if this friend asked for this form of support from me? And most of the time, I'm like, I would be so honored that they reached out to me. (laughs) I would be so happy that they chose me to share (laughs) these feelings with or to come to me in their time of need. And I try to think, okay, that is probably a lot more true than what my brain tells me about how I come off if I ask for support. Mm -hmm. So let me try to remember and remind myself of that to facilitate asking for support. I think, you know, studying friendship and studying psychology, it's, And my book, Platonic, it's on like how to become more securely attached. And um, writing it has made me more secure in myself. But I will Mm -hmm. say it's not that I don't feel insecure and don't have fears around rejection, but it is that I now have a lot more humility around it. I'm like, okay, I'm scared of rejection, but that's not necessarily going to happen. That's not necessarily the truth. Like I notice that that insecurity is there, but I don't buy into it as much, I guess. And I think that, honestly, the research supports that, that like people love us more than we think they do. That's so encouraging. I feel encouraged just hearing that. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. (laughs) That's what we're going for. Yes, definitely. What if people are in friendships where they feel like they're constantly the giver or the initiator, but it doesn't feel like they receive the same back? What, Mm. What should people do in that instance? (sighs) Yeah. So 
you know, in my book, I talk about the difference between dependency and Mm -hmm. friendship. Dependency is vulnerability and asking for support should be part of the book of friendship, a chapter of the book. But when you're dependent, it's the whole book. Like every time you're interacting, you're just talking about their problems. They're not taking on responsibility to work through their problems on their own. They're just kind of calling you and trying to put them on you. The dependency looks like you're not having mundane moments together. Everything is always yeah. this intense moments where they're they're kind of putting things on you. And so that that dependency, even though vulnerability is great, asking for support is great, there is a level at which it becomes more dependence than a friendship, yeah. which isn't fair. Like we need relationships of reciprocity. Not saying that dependency won't happen at certain times in a friendship when people are in crisis, but if it's mm-hmm. the again, the entire book of the friendship, every chapter it's sort of been like this then again, that's a sign that there's something off balance and off kilter. I think there's ways to gently approach it. There's this psychologist, Harriet Lerner, and she kind of says like saying something like, I miss the fullness of our relationship. Like I know that you've been going through a lot and you need a lot of support right now and I want to give you that support. And I miss that we used to do all these other things together. I miss that we used to have times when we laughed and times when we hung out and times that we chilled. And, you know, would you be open to just bringing back some of those like fun moments to our relationships, integrating Mm -hmm. some of that um, as a sort of softer way? I would say I'm always, I think what happens though, unfortunately, like these people that people describe as draining they just kind of back away from them. Yeah. And I wish that people would try to address the problem before mm-hmm. backing away. I always yeah. say when you start to withdraw in a friendship, that's the sign that you have to ha- have the conflict. You know, because there's some things that you, they're in passing and you get over. You don't have to bring up everything. But when you start to withdraw, that's the sign to like st- actually bring the thing up. And this was really this part of what writing the book really changed in me because I would never bring up issues. And I thought as a friend, it's being a good friend is me getting over it on my own and not Mm -hmm. trying to threaten the friendship. And then I read this study that says that having open empathic conflict is linked to deeper intimacy Mm -hmm. and being passive aggressive about the issues actually raises other people's blood pressure. And I was Mm -hmm. like, Oh, wow. So I'm being a bad friend by just ignoring yeah. the fact that I have a problem with them. Mm-hmm. And um, not only that, there's the psychoanalyst Virginia Goldner who talks about how you could have flaccid safety in your relationships, which is like we feel safe because we don't address any problems. Or you can have dynamic safety, which is we feel safe because we rupture and we repair. We know mm-hmm. that when we bring up issues – we will both stay in it until we work through it together. And that's kind of is what I found that when I've been able to have conflict with friends, it's a more intimate relationship because I'm bringing more honesty to it and it's more likely to be maintained because now in the future, when we have another rupture, we're not like we need to either endure this or just back away. Like we have this third option. But just one last point about this because Mm -hmm. I think I didn't realize this before that It's not having conflict that saves the friendship. It's how you have the conflict. If you're like, you disappointed me, I hate you, you're a bad friend, that's just not going to heal the friendship. Like healthy conflict looks like framing. Framing is, you know, sharing their positive intent for the conversation. Like I want to have this conversation because I love you and I don't want anything to get between us. So that's why I bring this up. Using I statements. Hey, I feel hurt that you 
uh, cancel on me last minute. Perspective taking. I'm just wondering, is anything going on with you that's been causing this issue? Asking for what you need in the future. Okay, great. Well, maybe next time, like, could you give me like 24 hours before canceling? I really appreciate that. Like, that's what healthy conflict looks like. It looks like when the other person starts escalating. I learned this with my best friend. We had a conflict and she was like, well, everything I do, it seems like you're upset at. And I was like, okay, healthy conflict is de-escalating. So I said, I'm really sorry that I haven't spent enough time telling you just how much I love you and just how many things you do right for me. Mm-hmm. And there is this you know, one thing, but that doesn't mean that there aren't, aren't all these ways that you show up for me as a great friend. So those are some of the, the ways that we could have conflict to deepen our intimacy. Definitely. Definitely. That makes sense. Something that I was also thinking through as you were describing that and I don't want this to come off as generalizing. This is just purely my own observation. So this, maybe there could be research that doesn't support this or whatever. But that's what I was thinking about earlier when we were talking about the differences between gendered friendships. Because a lot of what I've observed from men in my life and from the friendships that they have with other men is that they will avoid conflict mm. or they will avoid having difficult conversations with one another of like, oh, I don't want to be in it or I don't want to go there. I don't want to start this. And I'm wondering, one, if that's true or if that is a contributing factor to why those relationships tend to not be as deep. And and if women have more willingness to have these conversations and those those conflicts, if that's why our friendships tend to be deeper. That's a really interesting idea. I will say – I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Based on a research uh, perspective, I don't think I've read any sort of research on this, but it certainly could be could be possible. I do remember reading a study, and this is, you know what, honestly, I think um, before I wrote Platonic, I didn't quite realize how starkly different the world of friendship for men can be compared to women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm just like, they know nothing about like, what it's like to be afraid for your safety all the time. But we we don't know anything about like just how different the world of friendship is for them. Like, you know, interviewing someone and having them say, I asked a guy to go to dinner and he was like, can we get lunch or bring someone else so it doesn't look weird? And I'm like, what? That right. is wild to me. Why are lunch and dinner so different and exactly. so differently? <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. <laughs> And like the the fact that men have, I think this this fear of being perceived as gay in this mm-hmm. like homophobic male culture that conflates masculinity yeah. with straightness, mm-hmm. and that really limits their ability to form any type of intimacy, same sex intimacy with men. That oh, I can't tell yeah. him I love him, you know, I can't even invite him out for dinner, I can't, you know, be too vulnerable with him. It's like this this it's called homosteria in the research men's fear of being perceived as gay and i think mm-hmm. it just has been generalized to a fear of intimacy with other men at all um yeah. because that could call their sexuality into question and i think as women it's something that we face a lot less and that mm-hmm. it's we still probably face it but and that really facilitates our permission for deeper intimacy because yeah, yeah so many of the things that just create friendship, I think some men feel afraid to do. And it's it's very unfortunate and very sad. Yeah, it is. I also think too, I don't think that intimacy and the ability to connect is a light switch. And so I, I think if someone does truly have a hard time connecting in their f- friendships, they're probably going to have a hard time in their romantic relationships too. I mean, it's not a switch that you can turn on and off. I think yeah. how you relate to people is kind of how you relate to people. And so- I don't know. It seems like there could be some overlap there. 
I totally think so. It's like as as women, and again, these are generalizations. Some men will say, no, no, no. I have a yeah. great intimacy with male friends. Great. You're the role model. Please, yeah. you know, spread the word. Yeah. <laughs> But but yes, that you know, as women, because our friendships tend to be more intimate mm-hmm. and more vulnerable, we have decades of practice in vulnerability before entering a romantic relationship. Yeah. Whereas sometimes men, all of a sudden, they're starting to learn a foreign language once they get into that romantic relationship because our scripts overlap so much between romance and platonic love, and and that I think creates some difficulties in heterosexual partnerships. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Been there. (laughs) Uh, No, this I I really appreciate you providing your thoughts there because I do think that it's really interesting topics to to look at. Another thing too that I'm thinking about, I mean, for my audience, a lot of us are in our 20s and 30s. I'm in my 30s. And I want to talk about friendships through major life transitions. Often in your 20s and 30s, that's where you're going through a lot of transitions. You're moving to a new city or you're getting married or you're starting to have children or changing careers or buying a home or all of these things. Can we talk about how we can build and maintain friendships through these major life transitions? Because I think sometimes those transitions can either one, maybe feel difficult to make new friends through, or two, sometimes people may feel like the friendships they had may not survive those transitions with them. So here's what I think happens in these times of transitions. We tend to have this script for each other, right? Like Mm -hmm. this is a script for what it means to be a wife, or this is a script for what it means to be a husband. This is a script for what it means to be a mother or a father. And this is a script for what it means to be the single friend, right? And those scripts can often be alienating. Like we think, oh, my friend just have a kid. They don't. She doesn't want to hear from me. She's too busy with her kid. When in fact, new moms report being quite isolated and needing that support. And it, uh, you know, it decreases their rates of postpartum depression even. Or, you know, my single friend isn't going to want to come. It's going to be all couples. Instead of being like, hey, single friend, here's the situation. Want to make sure you're included. Like, do you want to come? No worries if not, right? And there, there's also the script that you're not going to be interested in my life. I'm not going to be interested in your life. Maybe you're going to be looking down on me if you haven't met the same milestones that I have. And it's all this unsaid stuff. And we don't actually ask each other, like, hey, now that you're mm-hmm. have this kid, like, what does hanging out look like for you? You know, what is it, what does it mean for us to still be able to find time to hang out together um, at, with your your new life and your new responsibilities, right? Or, you know, am I am I talking too much about my kid? Like, how is this for you? Or to what extent do you want to be a part of my kid's life? Like, are you comfortable with like babysitting? Or is that not something that you're really interested in? And so I think we can just like have a lot more conversations instead of assuming that these life differences are signs that we are no longer compatible friends because that is simply untrue. It's the assumptions that make us more incompatible than it is the actual reality often. Oh, that right there was such a great point. It's the assumptions that make us often more incompatible than the circumstances themselves. I really loved the advice you just shared about actually having conversations and asking and sharing our perspective, but creating space for other people to share their perspectives, I think is so important because, yeah, I've seen people on all different sides of these transitions have all of these assumptions um, or maybe 
need support, but people in their lives don't know they need support. And so then everybody just kind of does their own thing or they drift apart or they have these assumptions of these people don't show up for me. So yeah, I think really having conversations through the transitions is really important and something that I know I definitely want to take forward in my friendships. Absolutely. And I think it requires you I mean, one of the biggest tips I share for making friends is to assume that people like you because according to something called the acceptance prophecy, when people are told that people will like them, even when it's not true, they become kind, warmer, friendlier, more open. Whereas we see from the research, people that tend to think they'll be rejected actually reject other people. They're cold. They're withdrawn toward other people. And I think a lot of a lot of these tips for intimacy require us to assume that people like us, even assume that people love us, to mm-hmm. be free with giving people opportunities to love us. And I realized all the ways that I wasn't doing that, but realizing that this is a glitch in our brain and the negativity bias. You know, when I went through a difficult time, I literally texted my friends, like, this is what support would look like for me, like food, reach out for company. I was very specific because – Now I know that, well, my friends do love me. They just don't always know how to love me. (laughs) And I need to give them that that information. It's not that they're not showing up. They might seem like, think that not showing up is an act of love because they don't want to bother or impose on me during this difficult time. So I just need to make sure that I'm communicating, okay, this is what love looks like at this time in my life. Definitely. Definitely. That's so important. And I think something that is kind of an act of kindness, both to ourselves and to our friends so that we know how to show up for one another. Exactly. Yes. I also really loved what you just mentioned about like a way to make friends is to kind of assume that people like you. Because I think for a lot of people, myself included, we tend to assume the opposite. And so I thought that was really cool that you mentioned that. But I'd love to talk more just about making friends as an adult because I think for a lot of people, it can feel really hard compared to when we're kids. When you're a kid, making friends can feel, I don't know if I want to say easy because everybody has a different experience, but it can feel pretty straightforward. You go to the same school, you're in the same activity, you live in the same neighborhood. It's like friendships can happen just with a lot more simplicity versus as an adult, there's almost more logistics to go through. And we have these decades of conditioning of assuming that people don't like us versus as kids, we don't really have that yet. So what can we do to make making friends as an adult feel less hard? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a few myths that I want to debunk. And when I do speak engagements on friendship, one of the biggest things that I come up against is people thinking friendship just happens organically. And that Mm -hmm. comes from childhood when it did, because we had Rebecca G. Adams, she's a sociologist. She says you have repeated unplanned interactions, like you see each other at a scheduled time. Nobody has to reach out and plan logistically. And you have vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And that's what creates that organic friendship. But as adults, hey, we don't have repeated unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. Like we go to work. That's we see people every day. We're not really often vulnerable with our colleagues, which means that We don't have any settings in our lives where friendships are going to happen organically. We are going to have to try. Like you have to try in adulthood, which means that you have to put yourself out there, which means that you say something like, it was so good talking to you. I'd love to connect further. Could we exchange contact information? And this is backed by a study that found that people who see friendship as happening organically are actually lonelier over time, whereas those who see it happening based on effort are less lonely because they're making the effort. And- Something that I suggest once you realize it doesn't happen organically, 
do some research and find a hobby or interest that you want to commit to. And that's going to give you continuous unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability in your life as an adult. So hiking group, improv group, language class. I say a group that's repeated over time because it capitalizes on something called the mere exposure effect, which is our tendency to like what is familiar. Mm -hmm. So there is a study done where these researchers planted women into a psychology class. And at the end of the semester, it was a large lecture. No one remembered the woman, but they liked the woman who showed up for the most classes, 20% more than the woman that didn't show up for any. And so what this tells us is that how we feel when we first meet people is not how we will feel two months down the line and how they will feel towards us. Similarly, we'll, they'll grow in affection and liking towards us. So we need to commit to showing up for two to three months before we bail. Like if I was new to a city, I joined two groups and I would commit to showing up two to three months at least to the groups before deciding whether I like it or I don't like it. But the other thing is sometimes we go to these groups and we're just waiting for someone to introduce themselves to us. And we're just on our phone the entire time because we feel really awkward. And so when you show up for this group, you've overcome something called overt avoidance, which is our tendency to not show up because we're scared or nervous. But you also have to overcome covert avoidance, Mm. which happens when we show up physically, but check out mentally. We're on our phone. We're in the corner. We're talking to one person we already know. You know, we're, this happened to me in college. I go to one, I go to one group club. Nobody says hi to me. I'm like, everyone's clicky and I'm not going to show up again. (laughs) Meanwhile, I don't hold myself to that, those same standards. It's like, am I reaching out to people? Am I making people feel welcome? Like all the things I wish that everyone would do for me, I also have to do for myself. And I think generally when it comes to being a good friend, we need to start thinking a lot more about how are we treating other people because we tend to be a lot more stuck in how people are treating us. And I think You know, I said the importance of the acceptance prophecy and assuming people like you and how much that helps, but it's actually really true. Like people are a lot less likely to reject you than you think. This is according to research on something called the liking gap that finds that when strangers interact, they tend to underestimate how liked they are by the other person. Mm -hmm. And that this is even more pronounced for people that are really self-critical who think their, you know, their self-talk that's telling them that they're awkward or weird is true when in fact it's it's great, greatly distorting the truth. And so, you know, what I've definitely found is that when I ask people, hey, would you like to hang out? It's been great to connect. Like they've been so open to it. And yeah. people think I think everyone has their friends already, but they don't. People are so lonely. I mm-hmm. I met this woman who was like really good at making friends and I asked her, how did you get that way? And she said, Her mom used to tell her, everybody wants to hang out with you. They're just waiting for you to ask. I love that. It reminds me of something that my mom has said. My mom is like very social, very extroverted. Everybody who meets her just loves her. And she always says, there's no such thing as strangers. They're just friends I haven't met yet. I love it. It's so cute. I mean, I am very introverted and have the opposite personality as her. So I'm like, (laughs) hmm. Uh, no, that's, there's, this is different than what you told me as when I was really little, stranger danger. Like, where did that go? But I, I love the idea that, you know, we haven't met all the people who are going to love us yet and mm. we have to give people a chance to do so. Absolutely. Isn't it beautiful? You know, it is. It's just like it so is. much possibility. Yeah. Yeah. And also too, 
just like a little tip for my fellow introverts, something that I used to do, and this was kind of pre-pandemic, there were a lot of events and I used to go to a lot of events, is I used to make it a goal to just connect with one person, whether that was like to have a really good conversation with one person or exchange contact information with just one person. Doesn't mean if you're maybe a little bit more introverted or reserved that you have to be the life of the party or work a room, but just trying to connect with one person. And I've actually made some really great friends over the years that way, just going to an event with a goal to strike up a conversation with one person. So that could also be a good way to like dip your toes in the water if you're, you know, a little more reserved. (laughs) I love it. I love it. There's this method called the insight and question method, which is Mm -hmm. like you comment on the environment you're sharing and then Mm -hmm. you add a follow-up question. Like I think- Women tend to will be like, I love that dress. Where did mm-hmm. you get it? Or, you know, like, oh my gosh, I love shrimp cocktail. What's your favorite appetizer? <laughs> like, whatever. It doesn't, you don't have to have the best opening line because initiating with people shows them that you like them. And remember, yeah. showing people that you like them is one of the best things you can do to make people help people connect with you. So right. take the pressure off yourself. Like, the fact that you're initiating is really amazing. Exactly. Definitely. I love I love that though. Comment on on the environment and then follow up with a question. I feel like that's just super simple and something that anybody can do in social situations. Definitely. Yeah. I would also love to just talk a little bit more about rejection because you mentioned how our fear of rejection is a lot greater than the probability that we will actually like face rejection or face something harsh or mean. Are there any kind of tools or tidbits we can use to help us kind of overcome that fear of rejection when it comes to friendship or when it comes to initiating those connections? Yeah. So I've heard stories of people being like, I want to make friends. I texted one person. They were not into it. And I never tried for the next five years. <laughs> and I'm just like, because, yeah, because I think the issue with rejection, it hurts and it's okay that it hurts. I mean, mm-hmm. it means you're still, you're human and, you know, nothing is more important to us than our social interactions. So nothing is more hurtful than rejection. But I think we need to see rejection as a part of the journey to connection rather than a sign that we shouldn't try anymore. Like, right. To me, it's a consolation prize for finding the connections that I really want. I'm going to be rejected sometimes if I put myself out there. But what is also going to happen is sometimes I'm going to be successful. And in the larger scheme of my life, I'm going to have a lot more nourishing connections if I'm willing to risk rejection than if I'm not, than if I'm not getting rejected and thus not getting the friends or the connections that I would really like to go for and like to have in my life. And so I think when it comes to rejection, we also need to prize ourselves on our behaviors, not on the outcome that we can't control. Mm. So if you're getting rejected, you initiated, you put yourself out there, you built a new skill. None of that is taken away because you were rejected. And so there's a reward, there's a win. I'm proud of you, no matter what the outcome is, because even if the outcome didn't work in this moment, you're putting yourself on a trajectory for the outcome to work in the long term. And so I think what we need to do is not get so discouraged about rejection that we think it means, oh, something's just wrong with me and no one wants to connect with me. Not catastrophizing it, not generalizing it, but instead reminding ourselves, this is part of my journey. Everyone who wants to connect with people and is intentional about it 
faces rejection. Me too. I can lick my wounds for a little bit, but let me remind myself that this isn't a sign for me to like get off the bus. This is a sign that I'm on the bus. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, That's such a great reminder. I loved what you said about it being a skill and celebrating that we're building that skill because these things are all skills. And I think we can be really hard on ourselves when we don't execute them perfectly or if we have an awkward moment or say something, you know, whatever. These are skills that we're building and we're all at different points where we're building these skills in different ways. And any step towards strengthening that skill, I think, is a win. And so, yeah, I loved how you said to focus on that as as opposed to focusing on the outcome, which we can't control. Absolutely. Yeah. And and in the larger scheme of things, people don't remember our awkwardness as much as we do ever. <laughs> right. I mean, there's this little a, a psychology term for it, the spotlight effect. We think we're mm-hmm. in the spotlight, but people literally don't even remember <laughs> when we do something <laughs> weird and awkward. And so, um, you know, give yourself a break. Give yourself grace. If you're trying yes. – that's great. If you fumble, that's part of the process, not a sign that something's wrong with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Franco, thank you so much for all of the amazing insight and advice that you shared today. It's been so helpful. I know there's so many things that you said that I am ready to apply to my friendships. If our audience wants to continue this conversation, definitely make sure you check out Dr. Franco's book, Platonic, which we linked in the show notes. It's a great read. How else can we find you, keep in touch with you, and support your work? I'm on Instagram sharing research-based tips on friendship. That's at Dr. Marissa G. Franco, that's D-R-M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O. And on my website, drmarissagfranco.com, you can reach out for speaking engagements on connection and belonging or take my free quiz, which assesses your strengths and weaknesses as a friend and gives you some suggestions. Perfect. And I just have to really plug your Instagram because your videos are awesome. Like the, Thank you. The videos that you share are so informative. I'm like, how do you pack this into like a 30-second video? Um, so we'll make sure that we link all of your information in the show notes so that everybody can find you. Really appreciate that, Liz. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Bye, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Franco as much as I did. She had so many good nuggets of wisdom and takeaways to help us feel supported in our friendships. Check out her book, Platonic, if you haven't already. We will make sure it's linked in the show notes. And speaking of show notes, you can head there for all of Dr. Franco's info so that you can follow her work. We also have information regarding our sponsors and discount codes that you can use there as well. Thank you so much for tuning in and for being a part of the Balanced Black Girl community. Next week, we're talking all things sensuality. We're exploring Tantra on the podcast. We're talking about sensuality and spirituality. It is a good, juicy conversation that you don't want to miss. So I'll see you back here next Tuesday. Tuesday.